What do geese, llamas, and donkeys have in common? Oh, we could say they're all farm animals, and that's true. And if you drive by farms, you might see any one of these animals out the field, the pasture, in the barn. But geese, llamas, and donkeys have this in common. They're all guard animals. So one of the reasons why farmers keep geese among their chickens is because geese will guard their chickens from possums, from raccoons. They'll warn them when hawks are flying overhead about to snatch them. One of the reasons why farmers keep animals like llamas or donkeys among their goats or sheep is because while these animals might seem cute and passive, if a coyote or a stray dog were ever to get into the sheep pasture and try to snatch one of the animals, a donkey will literally kill a coyote flat out. These are guard animals. So on one hand, they're, they're just run-of-the-mill farm animals, part of the flock, but they also have a unique place on the farm to guard animals from predators, to guard more passive, vulnerable animals from predators. This is their job. So day to day, they wake up and they eat like the rest of the animals and they drink out of the water trough like the rest of the animals. They just look like regular animals. But when called upon, they play very different roles on the family farm. Now in the church, we're all part of a, a flock. We're all under the ultimate rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's our great shepherd. And I'm part of the flock and you're part of the flock. The people next to you are part of the flock. We're all just on the same level in that respect. But at the same time, among God's flock, there are some that are called to guard the flock. There are some to be call, that are called to be the geese on the farm, the llama on the farm. Now, I'm a little reluctant to use this analogy, but the, the donkey on the farm. So don't take that analogy too far. But some of us are called to guard the flock. Those are the pastors, the traveling preachers and teachers. And it's their responsibility to oversee and to guard and to guide and to direct God's people while at the same time being very much part and parcel of God's people. The passage we're going to look at today is a little bit obscure. So the first part of chapter eight, we've been studying, by the way, if you're just joining us, Second Corinthians for several months as a church. And what we're looking for is to have indomitable faith. We want to be strong in our faith. We don't want to be pushed around. This book helps to strengthen our faith in many areas. So last week, the message revolved around this concept of being generous. So the first part of chapter 8 focuses on uh, the generosity of God's people. We're called to be generous. Then in chapter 9, which Lord willing we will study next week, there's another call to be generous. But in the middle of these two passages, we have 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 16 to 24. And this passage is sort of speaking about the roles and responsibilities of preachers and teachers among God's people. And there's a little bit of material here on the roles and responsibilities of the church toward God's preachers and teachers. 
So the church is definitely in on this together. We're a family. We have mutual responsibility. We're all equal before the Lord. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male nor female in Christ, meaning that we're all part of the flock. So we don't in any way, shape or form as we're preaching this today, want to go away with the notion that there are like super Christians and then there's just the rest of you. We're all part of the flock. We don't exist to upstage others. We don't exist to make other people's lives difficult, but we have different functions in the flock. Some guard the flock. So join me in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 as we look at this description of the role of traveling ministers and the mutual responsibility of the church to them. So the passage reads as follows, beginning with verse 16. But thanks be to God. In other words, this material that we're going to read, it's, it's God's idea. But thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus, that was an early preacher and teacher and leader in the church under the authority of the apostle Paul, the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him, we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. It's interesting, he's famous, but we don't even know his name. There are some that will rise to prominence. We don't necessarily need to draw attention to their name, but some will rise to prominence and be well-known among God's people. So there's Titus and then this unnamed brother. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. So that's referring back to the grace, which was God's provision to the church, the church's collection of an offering to send on to needy Christians in other parts of the world. Uh, Titus and this famous unnamed preacher and the apostles were tasked with the responsibility of taking this grace, as it's called, this gift to needy members of the church. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. In other words, we're doing it as a team because we don't want anybody to ever be accused of financial mismanagement. For we aim at what is honorable and only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And then verse 22. And with them, we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you, that is the church. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of your boasting about you to these men. Now, we need to acknowledge this is not an exhaustive description of the role of ministers and the role of the church in all things related to the kingdom of God. It's just a little fraction. Gives us just a little bit of insight into the role of ministers and the role of the church. But it is important. It gives us some idea of how ministers and the church as a whole work together to bring glory and honor to the Lord. So let's start off because most of the verses relate to the role of the ministers. 
let's talk about the responsibilities of gospel ministers. In this particular text, there are at least two identified. We have Titus, who we've met earlier. We actually have a book in our Bible called Titus, and it's a letter by Paul to Titus, helping him to understand how to pastor and shepherd the early church. And then we have an unidentified, very famous brother who had some sort of significant ministry among the early churches in Asia. As we look at these two men, there's at least five different descriptions or characteristics or tasks, if you will, that describe what they did. There really are timeless, the kinds of things that I should be pursuing as a minister of the gospel, the kind of things that you should be pursuing if you're a leader among God's people, an elder, a teacher, some sort of a ministry director. The first is found in verse 17. You must be earnest and willing to serve. It's interesting that when you skip over to the pastoral epistles, which are 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, one of the very first qualifications for eldership in the church is desire. You have to desire it. The word there in most English translations is aspire. And this is a fascinating statement because what it tells us is that when it comes to church leadership, while not everybody that wants it is qualified for it, we should never try to coerce people into leadership. Never try to force them into it. You know, in some branches of the, the ancient church, it was like, well, daddy was a minister, so I guess I got to be a minister. And if I'm a minister, then I guess my son's going to be a minister. It was like the family business or something like that. Or people were basically told, you know, you're, you're going into the priesthood. That's it. You're going into the priesthood. But here we're reminded that when people serve in high office among God's people, they shouldn't be coerced into it. They don't come into it to lord it over people either. They come into it to serve. Do you see that in verse 17? Earnest and willing to serve. Not bedraggled and waiting to retire. No, it's true. It's true. We all know this. Anybody that's ever been in any position of leadership knows that it can be both, both the best thing in the world and the worst thing in the world, sometimes on the same day. You know, there's times when anybody in, there's everybody in church leadership is like, you know what, I think I'm going to quit. We've all been you know, at our keyboard ready to type our resignation letters out when we're in a position of leadership. Sometimes it's tough and challenging. It's like, why am I doing this? But if you look at the big picture, you're not going to function very well as a leader among God's people if you're not earnest about it and willing to serve, sometimes at great expense and cost to yourself, maybe even at great expense and cost to your own physical health. Secondly, in verse 18, and this should go without saying, but unfortunately it doesn't go without saying, and that is that a faithful minister of the gospel preaches the gospel. It's like, really? That's like saying, you know, a faithful chiropractor adjusts people's backs or a faithful painter paints walls. Or a faithful sculptor makes sculptures. Isn't that what they're supposed to do? Yeah, 
But unfortunately, there are many ministers today that seem more interested in propagating the secular ideologies of the day than actually preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you are listening to ministers of the gospel preach, and their message just sounds like a slightly more sanctified version of what you just read on CNN, something's probably wrong. They're just repackaging the ideologies, the false views of justice, the false views of righteousness, the lies of the day. But a faithful minister of the gospel preaches the gospel. When do they do it? In all seasons, when it's popular, when it's not popular, when it's accepted, when it's not accepted, when people want to hear it, when people don't want to hear it. If you actually believe the gospel is the light of the world, then you must commit yourself as a Christian leader to preach the gospel in season and out of season. We see these two men doing that to the honor and glory of God. Verse 19, they were appointed to carry gifts to the poor. So here we have some insight into the administrative duties of early Christian leaders. They had preached to the church the need to be generous. The church had responded to it. They had taken those funds and they were now in an accountable context, taking those funds and distributing them to the poor. Again, if you read the first several verses of chapter eight, you'll understand that the grace that they're referring to is the offering, the collection that was taken up. It was God's blessing upon them to be able to contribute to gospel ministry. So we, of course, could stretch this out and just remind ourselves that when you're a faithful Christian leader, there's lots of administrative duties and responsibilities that you have to guide and direct the church. This past week, we had a, an elders meeting. And in that elders meeting, we talk about the state of the church and the challenges of the church and the blessings of the church. And we also have to do some administrative stuff. We have to look at our church budget. And praise the Lord, by the way, God has richly blessed our church. I got to tell you, in my faithlessness last spring when we went into the first lockdown, I'm like, oh my word, we just built this building. We're going to lose it. But by God's grace, we actually ended last year over, I think over $100,000 over what we budgeted. So God has just richly provided for our church and we're so thankful for that. But we have to have conversations about that. So we were aware of a pastor outside of our area that was struggling. So we're like, hey, let's send this guy some money. Let's help him out. So we did that. We're aware of some initiatives that are near and dear to our heart that uh, we think we, we want to get behind. So we, you know, we sent money uh, to those initiatives. Uh, this past week, we, we became aware of someone that had a financial need. So a couple of us had a conversation and we released our people to go and bless them. These things are taking place all the time in the life of our church. We don't necessarily put them all in lights and announce them like politicians do. Here's all the great things we're doing. But we commit ourselves to dispensing the, the gifts and offerings of God's people to those that are in need or to worthy causes. The fourth responsibility of Christian leaders in the church, and we've sort of already touched on this, is found in verses 20 and 21, and that is to be 
accountable financially and honorable. We see that word, word there, honorable in the way that they conduct themselves in ministry. To make sure that the right people in place, that good people are in place to handle the, in this context, the financial responsibilities of the church. And then verse 23 reminds us that their ultimate goal, the ultimate goal of the Christian leader is to serve for the benefit of the people, to the glory of God, of course, but for the benefit of the people. There's nothing that should disturb you more than a Christian leader that's in it for their own ego. There's nothing that should disturb you more than a Christian minister that's in it for their own fame. Now, I don't want to read too much into the word of God, but I, I must say one of the thoughts that's sort of in my mind is, is that why this famous preacher that is mentioned in this text is not named? Perhaps it's a subtle way for the Apostle Paul to both recognize that some will rise to great prominence among God's people, but they don't necessarily have to have prominence drawn to them. The reality is, is that some will do great works, prominent public works for the sake of the kingdom of God. But if it is ultimately for the glory and honor of God, why do previous generations that will follow them even need to know who they were? They really don't because it was done to the honor and glory of God. So there's a balance here, I think, in the text, reminding us that some will be more prominent, but at the same time, we don't need to draw unnecessary attention to them. And this would square up with this notion in verse 23 that they are serving not to make themselves feel better, not to meet some void in their life, or they don't feel they have a meaningful job, or they don't feel they're meaningfully contributing, so they're going to jump into church ministry to somehow gain fame or gain prominence, but ultimately to bless others. So if I could propose a couple of questions, they would be this. If you are a current church leader, are these characteristics true of you? Just think about that. Are these characteristics true of you? How about this? If you're an aspiring church leader, because you know church leaders are always dying and going into eternity and new ones are being raised up. If you're an aspiring church leader, you sense of the Lord is calling you into a position of prominence in the church. Or people are saying to you, you know, you, you have a lot of influence. I think you have potential as a, deacon, an elder, a pastor, a leader in the church? Are you working hard at developing these characteristics and qualities in your life? The Lord might call you into leadership when you're very young. The Lord might call you into leadership like he did with Abraham later in life. But are you aspiring to be marked by these things? Earnest and willing to serve. Willing to preach the gospel willing to carry gifts to the poor, to actually engage people in tangible ministry, accountable financially and an honorable person, and is your motive for the benefit of the people of God. That's what will keep you in the saddle, by the way. Year after year, decade after decade, faithfully dispensing your leadership abilities to the church. If these things aren't true, you might get by for a few years, but over time, you're going to break down as a leader. So we need to make sure that the characteristics that were present 
and early church leaders are also present in our lives. And then we have a smaller section here identifying the responsibilities of the whole church. And again, I don't want you to leave thinking this is an exhaustive list, but there is a couple statements here that are noteworthy. If you look at verse 19, again, there's a call to the church as a whole to be deliberate and generously meeting the needs of other believers. And in this context, it happened to be a big collective offering. Now, here we have people in the early church who are being presented to us that were willing to dive in eagerly when ministry opportunities were presented to them. That should be true of all of us. If there's a need, it's like, hey, I'd like to meet that. I'd like to volunteer for that. If someone is struggling financially or emotionally, physically, what do we do? We, we mourn with those who mourn. We weep with those who weep. We rejoice with those who rejoice. We provide for the needs of others. It's wonderful to be part of a church. We don't have to twist people's arms behind their back. Oh, time for you to serve. Time for you to give. But where people are like, I, I want to do this. I, I know what my priorities are. I know what the Lord has done for me. I, I know about the, the generosity of Christ. It's wonderful to be part of a church and to continue to contribute to a church culture where people want to dive in to the deep end of ministry. And I'm so thankful right now I'm, I'm inside. Most of you are outside, but I have the worship team sitting in front of me and some sound people at the back. I'm so thankful that they're willing to get up early and some of them are young. I know they'd rather be sleeping in till like noon but they're willing to get up early and drive here, not because they're looking for a pat on the back or fame and fortune, but they want to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a wonderful thing for us to sacrifice our sleep, our finances, our time entertaining ourselves elsewhere to serve the purposes of the kingdom of God. So yes, this section is about generosity, but there's so many other ways the church can serve. I'll just give you one additional passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, which is one of several passages in the Bible that speak of gifts and spiritual talents, if you will, and how we can use them. There it says, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. So this is a passage teaching the church that we're all different. Now we have a lot of similarities, but we're all different. Some people are just, they're just wired to empathize and encourage. It's just, it's just their wiring. And what a blessing to be around people like that. Others are just, they're just wired to serve behind the scenes. I mean, they just love it. They're always willing to offer a helping hand. Others are just wired to, to give. They just, like they get up in the morning looking for opportunities to give to those in need. Others are wired to like administrate the affairs of the church. You know, they love the spreadsheets and the database development and following up and writing. They're just wired for that. What a blessing to have people like that in the church. 
Others are wired to lead and oversee. Others are wired to teach and preach the full counsel of God's word. We're all different. But what does the text say? Different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. At work in what way? Through us. So if you haven't done this already, dive into ministry. We need you. You're a unique person. God has wired you in such a way. If you're part of the body of Christ, we need you. And if you don't serve, it's like living your life with an amputated hand or an amputated arm or whatever it might be. You're not the person that you could or should be because part of you is missing. And in the body of Christ, if you're AWOL or not serving, it's detrimental to the broader, broader body of Christ. Secondly, the church as a whole contributes to the ministry of the building of God's kingdom through loving, hospitable cooperation. I'll just reread for you verse 24. So give proof before the churches of your love and of your boasting about you to these men. Let me read it again. So give proof before the churches that is the other ones that are watching your example, Corinthian church, of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. What does that mean? It means that this church was being called by the apostle to demonstrate love and hospitality toward others. In this context, traveling missionaries, traveling teachers, men like Titus, and this unnamed famous preacher. Say, keep doing that. Show them love. Show them hospitality. You see, we show evidence of our love through hospitality. Now, when I was growing up, we were in a fairly small church, and it was pretty close-knit. There, there weren't a lot of new people that would come out, which was unfortunate. The church didn't really do a good job of reaching that many lost people. It was a little bit more of a holy huddle, if I could call it that. But one of the things this church was really good at was hospitality. Almost without exception, after church, we went to someone's house and spent the whole afternoon eating dinner, fellowshipping. Then we'd come back, have a second service. And it probably the church, one of the churches that I've been part of over the years that just had the, the greatest understanding of of um, fellowship and community. Now, it's interesting. Uh, I've talked to a few of you in our parking lot services. Things are so ridiculous. We're in our parking lot spread out, you know, one space between others, and we're not supposed to roll down our window, talk to people. So I've heard of some of you, two or three families will get together. They'll literally drive to Walmart after church and get out and have after church fellowship walking around Walmart. That's how ridiculous and contradictory things are right now. But, you know, desperate times calls for desperate measures. But all of this is to say that I think when I was growing up, my understanding of hospitality was just sort of fellowshipping with people in my church. But if you actually look throughout the scriptures at this notion of biblical hospitality, biblical hospitality is primarily when you do that for a stranger. Remember the scriptures, it even talks about like entertaining angels unaware. Hospitality is primarily directed toward the stranger. 
It's the new person that shows up that you invite out. That, that's when, that's a little more awkward. It's like, I don't know this person. It's, it's the traveling preacher, the traveling missionary, the person that just comes into town to do a temporary ministry. When you reach out to someone like that, that's a, an even greater demonstration of love because you don't, you don't know this person. It's, it might make you feel a little more uncomfortable. But you reach out to them because you understand it's the right thing to do and they're part of the broader body of Christ. So we are called to demonstrate love and hospitality, not just to those that we're most comfortable with, you know, our friends, our immediate family, the people we've known for years, but to develop and demonstrate hospitality to the stranger and to participate in this way in the ministry initiatives of the church and to demonstrate the love of Christ to others. Right now, it is really, really hard for us to be all that God has designed us to be when we cannot be together in person. It's really hard, very challenging. We can be together in small groups, but we can't be together as a church family. And this is wrong. And it's very hard. Some ministry is happening, but so much ministry is on hold right now because we're just, we can't be together. At the same time, I have this sense that the church is being purified, that the Lord is sanctifying us. He's helping us to think through what are my real priorities? Have I taken for granted God's provision, God's ministry opportunities? Have I taken them for granted? Have I taken the church for granted? So there's, there's pluses and there's minuses to all of this, but I want to take us back as we conclude to the first statement because I find this to be quite encouraging. The first statement in this collection of verses reminds us that even though we're limited right now in our ability to even live out this scripture teaching, God is still on his throne. Is he not? God is still on his throne. It says, but thanks be to God. This is how it starts. Lots of conversations about what the preachers were doing and a little bit about what the church was doing in return. But it starts out, but thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. Guess who provided Titus with motive? God. Guess who provided Titus with opportunity? God. God is sovereignly in charge. He's calling us to serve and to be all that we can be in Christ. But ultimately, we can thank God that it is God who positions us to serve one another and his people. So let's play our part in responding to what God has called us to do. Let's do our job. Let's serve with diligence and passion. But at the same time, when we're limited, when opportunities might seem a little sparse, when unfortunately we're separated, let's, re- let's just remind ourselves of this grounding truth. God is still on his throne. And we're going to thank him when it's easy, and we're going to thank him when it's a little more difficult. At the end of the day, the Lord will build his church with or without us, I want him to build it with me. I want to be part of his plan. But at the end of the day, the Lord will build his church with or without us. And in that, we can put our 
hope. So I trust that this is an encouragement to those of you that are leaders, aspiring leaders, and conscientious servants within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's do our best to dispense our gifts, our abilities, and our calling to the honor and glory of our great King.